Hello and welcome to episode 1385 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. I am joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. So I think Meg and I will be talking to a draft expert or two on the next episode, so we'll talk about individual teams and players that time, but... Travis Sachek and I were on MLB Network on Tuesday promoting our book, The MVP Machine, which I am promoting now by mentioning it. Go get it. And we were taken by surprise because the draft came up and neither Travis nor I really a draft expert who is qualified to talk about that under the best of circumstances, let alone when we're focused on the book. But the topic was sort of the skew toward position players in the first round of the draft this year and whether that is meaningful. And I think that's sort of an interesting thing. I'm kind of interested in the draft from that perspective, like the strategy and what types of players get picked more so than the individual players, because I don't know that much about the individual players and we don't have to know most of them for three years or so and if they even get good then. But first six picks in the draft this year were all position players. And I think of the 32 players picked in the first round, Only 10 were pitchers, and they were mostly concentrated toward the back half of the first round. And I'm not sure to what extent that's a long-term trend or whether this is just a one-year thing. And I know that the perception was that this year's draft was kind of weak on pitchers. But it sort of makes sense that things would be headed that way, right? Do you think it makes sense? It could be a a small sample blip, but like long-term trends would suggest that you'd be more likely to spend your top picks on position players, right, for a few reasons. Yeah, you know, I was talking to <laughs> I was talking to RJ about something yesterday and uh, some phenomenon, some trend that we noticed and I I I said, you know, it makes sense and then we talked about why it made sense and then I said, of course if it were the exact opposite, that would also <laughs> make sense and we'd be able to talk about why that would also make sense. Whatever teams are doing, if they're doing it, you can say, well that makes sense, yeah. otherwise they wouldn't <laughs> be doing it and you can find the reasons why it makes sense and it does make sense. Yeah. I mean, it, if you sort of think of the Cubs model of building a team, which was to invest in uh, a lot of young position players to really build the young position player part of their Mm -hmm. farm system in their future and try to get all those guys to be ready in a few years. And then when you're ready, then you go out and get the pitchers. This is an extent. Now, of course, the Braves did the exact opposite, but let's focus on the Cubs, (laughs) which has, you know, I guess it has like two or three benefits. One of which is that your if you're good at hitting right now, you're much more likely to be good at hitting in three years than a pitcher who's good at pitching right now is necessarily likely to be good at pitching in three years. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're thinking about getting players that are you know three years away, then you you focus on the hitters. I mean, it makes sense that you basically would want to invest more in pitchers that you're going to use right away, and invest less in pitchers that you have to count on keeping healthy. Yeah. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that's the main reason it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, on one hand, it's probably easier to project or at least evaluate in the present pitchers than it is hitters because it's just, I mean, it's just generally easier, I think, to scout pitchers than scout hitters, most scouts would say. And in college now, you you have data on pitchers where you can see exactly what their stuff is. And that's kind of all you need to know. Whereas with hitters, you can, you know, see exit velo and launch angle and all that stuff. But 
mechanics come into play and the quality of the competition comes into play, whereas pitchers, you're just looking at what are they throwing, how well do they throw it, and in theory, that should transfer over. So you could argue that you should be more confident in your evaluation of pitchers than hitters, and so you would be more inclined to spend a top pick on a pitcher whom you're confident in. On the other hand, you're a lot less confident in the long run just because pitchers get hurt, and that has always been the case. It's maybe even more the case now with pitchers throwing as hard as they do. So that's one reason why I think it would make sense to concentrate on position players. And the other one is just the trends in pitcher usage. And I mean, there were, what, 13 pitchers last year who threw 200 innings in the majors. I mean, that's the best case scenario is that you become a top of the rotation starter and top of the rotation starters don't make as big an impact as they used to because they don't throw 250 or more innings. So I think if you're looking for a franchise cornerstone type player, which you are early in the first round, then you'd want to go for a position player. And the other thing that we talk about in the book and that comes back to the whole data-driven player development movement is that I think it's probably a little bit easier to build a pitcher, to make a pitcher than it is to do that with a position player at this point. So if you see a pitcher who is maybe not polished, but he's got some raw stuff that looks promising or whatever, he's got something that you like and you think you can get more out of him. Maybe he's doing something inefficiently, but has good arm speed or something like that. And you think, well, we'll take this guy who needs some molding and development in the second or third round, and we can make him into what would be a first round talent. So I think all of those reasons suggest to me that this might be a real thing, but maybe we can talk about this on the next episode when we know the actual pitchers involved. Yeah, I also have uh, something that I've kind of been treating as true. I haven't really tested it, so I I could be wrong about this. But if you look through baseball history, expansion, whenever you expand the number of teams, what we find is that it turned out that, hmm, how do I put this? uh, Expansion creates more pitcher scarcity. And when there's no expansion, the pitchers catch up and there is less pitcher scarcity. And it's been a long period of time without expansion. And I I feel like at this point, pitchers aren't very scarce. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of pitchers out there, uh, which is one reason that teams are able to use so many of them in relief and build their pitching staffs around bulk, around the concept of having lots of pitchers capable of pitching effectively for an inning or two. I mean, that's partly because relief pitching is is easier, but I think it's also partly because every every organization except for one uh, <laughs> right now has enough pitching, you know, kind of to, to get through 1500 innings. And so if you just feel like you're, you're, the draft is an opportunity for you to get something that isn't readily available. Impact hitters are right now probably scarcer than, you know, pitchers who can dominate for an inning in relief, which is how you're probably going to use them. Mm -hmm. I wrote something in February about how the old saying, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect is almost looking literally true on public prospect lists for professional players. So if you look over time, there are fewer pitching prospects at the top of public prospect lists in the past few years, which I think could be because of all the trends we've been talking about here. So it makes sense that if that's the way things are trending in prospect rankings for professional players, that might also mirror the way things are looking on lists for amateur players. maybe that's what we're seeing here. All right. Well, another month has ended and a new month has begun. And so you have published another piece on the Hall of Famers that Mike Trout passed last month. (laughs) So who are they? Uh, Roberto Alomar. Mm, Good one. Ernie Banks. Very good one. And Fred Clark. 
you know, <laughs> not, not quite as impressive. On you the know, surface, Fred but... Clark. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Fred Clark was a dead ball era, pre turn of the century era outfielder who was uh, I, probably maybe more famous as a manager. I I was aware of him as a manager because uh-huh. I he had he has some he, he's on some leaderboards for managing. He was a player manager from the age of 24. It was a very different era. He was a 24-year-old manager and player. And um, yeah, Fred Clark. He's better than Fred Clark, everybody. <laughs> yeah. So were there any interesting factoids that you turned up in this time? Well, a factoid, as you know, is a uh, seemingly plausible sounding fact that turns out to not be true. What you, what you, mean, what <laughs> okay. you mean is fun, fun facts. facts. Yes. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I forget which ones um, <laughs> they were. I liked that Fred Clark, who was considered by many to be the best out- defensive outfielder of his time, uh, made 45 errors in a season because <laughs> that's how baseball was, uh, which was kind of the, the point of trying to write about Fred Clark is just like, well, well who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There were, there were some things. I'll link to it. It's a fun series. I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah, me too. And I feel like Ernie Banks, I, I don't know, I, I kind of felt this way about Duke Schneider. And I kind of feel this way about Ernie Banks as those being the guys who really make like drive home that like we have now crossed into a new level of Hall of Famer. Nothing against. I mean, obviously, all these players are at the same war level. So Robbie Mm -hmm. Alomar was as valuable as Ernie Banks, you know, within the margin of air that war provides. But uh, Ernie Banks is like a Ernie Banks to me feels like an inner circle Hall of Famer. Yeah. And uh, and he was uh, when he was first half of his career for the first half of his career. He was outrageously good. So, yeah. So like uh, so. okay. so here's here's a thing from 1957 to 1960. The second best shortstop in baseball had an OPS of 738. The second best offensive shortstop had an OPS of 738 in those four years. And Ernie Banks went almost those entire four years in a row, 22 22 consecutive months without a single month that he had an OPS below 800. (laughs) And so he was just so much better. I just, given, given like sort of time machine capabilities and watching baseball players who were most outrageous against their peers... I feel like Ernie Banks might be like a top six or seven destination for the time machine, just yeah. because the the way that shortstops were at the time it was it, it was just he had f- over those four years he had more than forty percent of all the home runs that the that the league's shortstops hit. Huh. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's a pretty fun fact. Yeah, so there you go, Ernie Banks. All right, yeah, this has been such a quiet. Mike Trout lead leading season, which I think is probably because of Bellinger. We talked about whether Bellinger was overshadowing other Dodgers hitters. I think he's overshadowing all hitters and all league leading hitters. So Trout has a like a half win or more lead right now in Fangraphs War. And I think he's also leading the AL in baseball reference war by a significant amount, by about the same amount. And you just wouldn't really know it, (laughs) I guess, because this is kind of a new Mike Trout again, but or a more extreme version of last year's new Mike Trout, who is just walking a ton. And maybe that's a little less obvious that stands out a little less in a non-war sense. And it's defense. And we've probably talked about this, but between more eye-catching seasons that are happening from guys who've been better in Belger's case or guys who are newly great, like Joey Gallo, for instance, and because of the way Trout has gotten to his league-leading total this year, 
it's sort of uh, an under-the-radar trout season, I guess, if you can call it that. And and also the Angels just being where the Angels are, but they're where the Angels have been for the last couple of years. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about this series is that whenever, anytime I mention a, um, a player's war, especially if it's an article that is built around the concept of war. So like when I wrote about Cody Bellinger's war, I got some replies like, ah, who needs war, right? That's a, you expect that. That's common. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Other people like articles based on other statistics. And I'm glad that there are people writing those articles. I don't think that these articles would appeal to everyone and that's normal. But one of the weird things is when I write about Mike Trout's war that I still get those replies about how war is, is no big deal. And it's yeah. like, you're going or to use Mike made Trout. To make him look good. Right. Like you're going to use Mike Trout as the example of how war is no good. So like I got this from a man named Lonnie who was talking about how war isn't a good measuring stick and how Trout has been bad in RBIs right. in four of the last five years or something like that. But then he says this, I think if you lead the league in an important category, that matters. Leading the league in runs matters. Leading the league in batting average matters. Leading the league in on-base percentage and home runs matters. And, like, it's Mike Trout. He led the league in on-base percentage last year. You just said it. He's done it four years in a row. He leads the league in, I mean, this is, maybe this is asking too much, but he's led the league in OPS plus five years in a row. He leads the league in walks every year. He's led the league in runs four times. He's led the league in, I mean, it was a while ago, but stolen bases. He's led the league in RBIs before. He hits 30 to 40 home runs every year. It's not like, this is not an Alex Gordon quiet MVP candidate kind of Mm -hmm. story. It's Mike Trout. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like the Mike Trout does as much for war, more for war. In fact, I think I've I one time used that as the kicker of an article, like that Mike Trout, if, if you're on the fence about war, Mike Trout is like a big shove in the direction of war because he leads it every year. And mm-hmm. like, that's Mike Trout. Like it, if it were a good stat, then you would think, well, I wonder if Mike Trout leads it every year. And he does. So uh, it feels weird to me that like, that I st- like I again like I I get it if I'm writing about how Jason Hayward should get a big contract because he has a good war like I can see why that would be mm. or when I say that Roberto Alomar is you know if I look at Roberto Alomar's war and you say that underrates him it, his defense was way better than that I know it with my eyes that makes sense but is there anybody whose eyes don't tell them that Mike Trout is also awesome I don't think so except there are people who just don't watch Mike Trout that much they just their eyes don't see him because they're not watching the angels i do think that war has burnished mike trout's reputation right even if that has also worked in the other direction i don't think mike trout would be as widely appreciated today if not for war because there's a whole segment of the baseball fan base maybe it's a minority but it's you know our portion of the fan base that reveres mike trout to the extent that we do because we have war, I think, right? Because we can say that he's the best ever through this age, et cetera, et cetera. If we didn't have that, then we would maybe still make that case, but it would be a more tenuous case because we'd have to say, well, he's this good at hitting and we think he's this good at defense and base running. And so he's kind of good at everything. So if you add it all up, maybe he's really good, but we wouldn't have the number that showed it. And I think early in his career, it was controversial because he was the main competition for the title of best player was Miguel Cabrera, who did have the superior 
traditional stats at that time. Not that Trouts were bad, but Cabreras were better. And so we had this war weapon that we could say, yeah, but look at the defense and look at the base running and all of this stuff and add it up. And here's the number that says he's actually better. And probably people are still sort of upset about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think it's plausible that if there was no war, if we had nothing but the same stats that we used through 1994 you know, or whatever, that Mike Trout would be widely seen as the as the best player in baseball. Like, get putting aside the question of whether uh, we'd be saying things like he might be the best player through age twenty seven in history and stuff like that. Do you think that it would be controversial to say he's the best player in baseball? Yes, yeah, I do. I do think it would. I'm sure it still is in some circles, but I think it definitely would. Because like, there's there are a lot of fans now and media people who it's just not even a, a conversation. I mean, we won't even entertain the idea that someone might be better, at least over the period of his career in any individual year. You could quibble, but. You can't make an argument that I would consider credible. I don't think that there has been as good a player as Mike Trout over the last several years. So if there weren't that number that we could default to, and you know, if it weren't a number that makes sense and is based on actual results and, and is validated, then I don't think I could as conclusively demonstrate that he was the best. And so it, it would be more arguable. Yeah, I am looking at the all-time the the sort of inner circle of career war leaders. And I'm trying to figure out if anybody, because most of these guys predate war, and I'm wondering if any of them are considered underrated or were considered anything less than all-time greats at the time. And I think that you probably have to go down to number 26. Well, and he's in the war era, but I think Adrian Beltre is a guy who, without war, would not be seen as the 26th or maybe even one of the 75 greatest players of all time. Mm-hmm. I feel like Roberto Clemente is an example of a player who he's 27th in career war, and everybody kind of knew that at the time. Everybody appreciated that. He was a consistent top 10, to often top 5 MVP candidate, despite not being like a, a massive run producer or even a base stealer or home mm-hmm. run hitter. Now, he did win batting titles, and so maybe he would have, I mean, he he obviously was seen as great. It didn't take war for people to see like, oh, this guy is incredible and well-rounded and an all-time great. Uh, And he did it despite nobody having war. So that would be a case that Mike Trout's genius would have come through. There are a lot of guys who are in the top, say, 100 or 75 who, without war, would, would probably not be seen and, and even with war not seen that way like mm-hmm. carlos beltron i think is a yeah. an example of that and scott Rowland is an example of that and there are, there are various but i mean when you're talking about the players who were in the top 20 or top 30 players in history it seems like they're all pretty uncontroversial um mm-hmm. and so that leads me to think that mike trout would also be uncontroversial but yeah i could see it i mean he does it's not like again it's not like he hasn't got incredible traditional stats i mean his he's one of the best batting average hitters in the league right now and has been his whole career he's one of the best power hitters and has been in his career he's one of the best power speed threats and has been in his career he plays a premium position he probably in fact gets he probably plays a premium position with a better reputation for defense than 
I mean, he is a good defender, but mm-hmm. he probably has an even better reputation as a defender than Ward yeah. gives him credit for. He's led the league in runs four times. I mean, his bold ink is, let's see, his bold ink is already 55th all time. Uh-huh. And so I I think you're right that he gets a bump into this conversation that we have about him, but I don't think it would be controversial. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not sure. He gets intentionally walked more than anybody else. But yeah, so that's true. MV, all right. So his MVP results in his career second, second, first, second, first, fourth, second. So two wins, four seconds, and a fourth. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty hard to argue with. But I could see all, I could see that being affected. Like Meg wrote an article one time about how Cole Hamels was, what was that article about? <laughs> it was about how even in an era of, kind of general disregard for wins and so on that we still underrate Cole Hamels because when you glance at his page, you don't see the Cy Young finishes that you would expect from a guy who wins if he were winning 20 games. And so the fact Mm -hmm. that he's had bad run support in his career and has a series of 16 win seasons will affect his, his Hall of Fame case, even though we're all like kind of not looking at his wins that much. And so if Mike Trout didn't have that series of MVP finishes, that might be pretty significant. And the question is whether those would survive in a world without war. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because there are some seasons there where the Angels have been way out of contention and it's been somewhat controversial if you don't give Mike Trout the award. But in other years, you might have just really ruled him out for a a top one or two or three finish just because of where the Angels finished. Whereas now, when you see that he's leading every leaderboard in perhaps the most important or all-encompassing stat, and everyone knows that and draws a lot of attention to that, it's it's almost indefensible not to give him that unless you want to go purely based on, well, you can't be valuable if your team doesn't make the playoffs because no one could be valuable that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like 2015, he had his career high 41 homers, but like, yeah, he finished second in MVP voting. He had 9.4 war. He led the majors in war. And you could probably imagine that in a warless era that you just look at those numbers and see 90 RBIs, a team that didn't make the playoffs, only 11 steals that year, a career low only a 299 batting average, which psychologically is lower than 300, didn't even lead the league in on base percentage, and maybe he'd finish like sixth. Yeah, right. Speaking of war and league leaders, I was just looking at the Fangraphs pitching war leaderboard, and at the top, very predictably, Max Scherzer, who I think you could make a case as having his best season yet. (laughs) He's just getting better every year, not in terms of ERA so far, but everything else is just sterling. So, That is the most predictable result you could imagine. The consensus, I would say, best pitcher in baseball is leading all of baseball in war right now. But after that, it gets pretty wild. It's just the rest of the top four, Matthew Boyd, Hyunjin Ryu, and Lucas Giolito. Not three pitchers anyone would have predicted to be anywhere close to the top four in war this year. Well, that's the... two months, but... (laughs) And that's the, the other side of the draft thing, is that it feels to me that there's you're more likely to get a sudden breakout from a pitcher than you are to get a sudden breakout from a hitter and so it feels like it just feels like you're a lot more likely to stumble into a great pitcher than you are to stumble into a great hitter yeah meg and i talked about giolito last week and 
Boyd is a driveline guy and Ryu, we probably should have talked about Ryu at some point because he's just having an incredible season. But yeah, and then you've got uh, Lance Lynn at number six. No, you don't. <laughs> Naturally. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, sure This is do. a test. No, you don't. <laughs> this is one of those uh, baseball reference versus fan graphs pitching war questions because Lance Lynn has a 4.5 ERA right now, but uh his other numbers look good. Then you've got Mike Miner at number 10. I think Mike Miner is actually like the top pitcher in yeah, baseball reference. He was. Right now. He was yeah. at least a couple of weeks ago. Oh, like a week or two ago. <laughs> yeah. So Frankie Montas. Is Frankie Montas there? Yeah, he's he's next, 11th. Yeah. It's uh, quite a leaderboard so right is now. There, is there anybody besides Scherzer that you looked at and said, yeah, when I, I – Verlander's well, got to be up there, right? Or Verlander's Strasburg. got all those home runs, doesn't Strasburg he? Strasburg is fifth, and I feel like Strasburg has been kind of on a career level underappreciated probably. We need to reappraise Steven Strasburg. I think our hopes were raised so high by his breakout and his prospect pedigree and everything that maybe we've overlooked him a little bit. He's been really great. But, yeah, and then uh, Herman Marquez is number seven, which mm-hmm. – not that he is a staple of the leaderboard, but he's someone who I think after last year you would have expected to be yeah. up there. He was a and, trendy sort yes. of like Cy Young sleeper. Pick. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got Kyle Hendricks and Jake Odorizzi, which uh, I guess it's not until you get down to like 12, 13, 14, Charlie Morton, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander. That's you have to go down pretty far to see the obvious names. So fun leaderboard this year. Mm-hmm. All right. Another thing I wanted to mention just briefly, Andrew McCutcheon is uh, out for the year. Looks like he tore his ACL. That is a great shame because everyone likes Andrew McCutcheon. And I enjoy his career, his kind of the latter half of his career here, because there was the year where I guess he was hurt. He had knee stuff, right? And we all kind of wondered whether he was just falling off a cliff and prematurely aging and to be clear, he is not the superstar that he was, but he's been incredibly consistent for the past three seasons, just as like a 20 to 25% better than league average guy. And even as some of his other skills have eroded, he has retained his sense of the strike zone and he's become a, a good on base guy. I mean, he already was a good on base guy, but he walks and he's a good guy to have at the top of your lineup. And he's been a boon to the Phillies, even though his contract was, I, I think, somewhat questioned that they invested as much in Andrew McCutcheon at his age as they did. And it looked like it was paying off until his injury because he's actually been the second best regular hitter in the Phillies lineup after Reese Hoskins. And Phillies have been good this year. They were my preseason pick to win the NL East, not with any high degree of confidence because I thought that division would be really tight. But they have played as a first-place team thus far. I mean, they're tied in the last column with Atlanta. But they haven't really done it the way that I thought they would do it, which I kind of thought they would slug. And they haven't really done that. Their lineup has been kind of a league average-ish lineup, if even that good. So losing McCutcheon is a, a pretty big blow for them, aside from any leadership qualities or whatever he brought. He's just been one of their best players. And hurts them defensively. They are already shorthanded because, of course, Odubel Herrera is suspended. And now I don't know what they do. They traded for Jay Bruce, who who hit two homers, which uh, I guess that's a good way to begin. And sounds like they will continue to be very active in the trade market. But that will be a fun division race, even if it's just a two-team race instead of a four-team race, which I'm not sure of yet, because I still think the Mets and the Nationals could kind of contend here. But 
this was already an interesting division and now it's going to be a really exciting one because this narrows whatever gap existed i think and Mm. sorry it just had to come at the expense of mccutcheon who we all like having around yeah scott kingery is back healthy and he's been pretty fantastic for them and he he plays some outfield yeah All right. You have anything? No. Okay. Then we will answer a few emails here. This one is from Ethan. He says, while watching the Arkansas Central Connecticut State opening game of the NCAA regional today, the announcer said today should be a national holiday on account of the tournament's 32 game opening day. You hear this every year during March Madness and on MLB opening day. But while the sentiment is familiar, the specific claim is certainly bold. If you were to become sports star, how many days of baseball would you allot a national holiday to? Would this make your top 30? (laughs) Mike Trout, by the way, his on-base percentage has now gone up each of the last five years. Yeah. And it didn't start— And the has gone down, right? And and it didn't start low. Yeah. No, that's true. And and he keeps lowering his strikeout rate as oh. the league keeps increasing his strikeout yeah. rate. He's he just keeps getting better and the Angels do not. I hope they catch up with him at some point. Anyway. So holidays. All right. Well, yeah. I personally so I would say all Fridays should be holidays anyway. I think Okay. You know, I think in the coming uh automation era, I think we need to figure uh-huh. out ways to uh to make it the norm that all people work less and uh so I'm going with three day weekends anyway. Sure. So, right. um, so all Fridays is my pick. So, so that's twenty six holidays right there. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I've got. I'll be honest. I think that baseball is one of the nice things about baseball is that it, uh, when it takes place during work, I think that rather than having yeah. more holidays to uh, have baseball days, I think there should be more baseball during work. Yeah, because I was thinking like, well, maybe the trade deadline is a national holiday, but I always really enjoyed having the trade deadline during school or during work or something because it was this constant distraction. Now, maybe if everyone is distracted and refreshing MLB trade rumors or whatever, then that's a good day to have a holiday because no one's productive anyway. But I kind of enjoyed that as a distraction and as just kind of like sneaking away from whatever you were doing to see if you missed some blockbuster that went down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The There's something nice about a Memorial Day where you've got a whole day of baseball and everybody can kind of kick back and, and relax. So so that does add value. But the, the, the romance of like sneaking out of work and going to a day game at Wrigley Field or cutting school like Ferris Bueller and going to a day game at Wrigley Field or or anywhere else the very welcome to, to me I, I I mean I used to just when I, I was working in non-baseball stuff I used to love like Wednesdays where you just go in and I'm on the west coast so like at 9 35 there'd already be a ball game on and it was just a whole day of watching baseball when I was supposed to be at work and um <laughs> I don't know. Who am I answering this question for? Am I answering it for my boss? Because in that case, not my actual boss, but my abstract boss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a, in a, then, then yes, I wouldn't want to <laughs> admit this, but I, I, I don't know. I like baseball during work, but that's not the spirit of this question. So the spirit of this question are what are the days when collect when it, there is the most cause for collective again though if if the goal is to build collective baseball viewing uh which i think is the premise of this question 
I again feel like it's the day game on a weekday that creates the most collective watching because we're all trying to, to distract ourselves from the same thing. Whereas if you have a, a day off, there's so many things you can do and your friends don't all want to watch baseball when they could be going to the beach or, you know, building a rocket ship and flying to the moon. So like, it seems like the, the putting everybody in the same prison sort of, and then having baseball as the thing that can collectively take you out of that prison is mm -hmm. how you really get everybody watching it. It feels like that's the, the day game, especially when it's, uh, there's only a a couple of day games that feels to me like when you see somebody do something weird that you get the most like twitter saturation on that play it's yeah. not so much the tuesday evening game where attention is is has been diffused yeah i mean i don't know whether we're talking about this from the perspective of what would be the best for baseball fans i guess that's what we're talking about because i don't know if it makes sense to have a national holiday because of an activity that only a fraction of the people in the country watch even if it's ostensibly the national pastime but i mean you give a, a national holiday to everyone and say it's because of baseball i guess that would increase the favorability ratings of baseball just because people get out of work and maybe some of them say i'll oh, check out this baseball thing because i don't have to go to work today but most of them probably wouldn't anyway I think opening day, of course, is that's the one where people say this already, and that is the, the best one. And then I think that first day of the division series round of the mm -hmm. playoffs, that's mm -hmm. a good one because you've got every team in action sometimes. You've got baseball like literally all day almost is on at times, and so – it's that's a lot of baseball to pay attention to when you're juggling work or school or whatever. And that's also a fun day to just park yourself in front of the TV and watch baseball nonstop. So those are probably the best ones. I mean, I guess you could have like, I don't know, provisional holidays for certain days that could be big, like like the last day of the regular season in case you get like a 2011 end of the season scenario, but that's pretty rare. Or you could carve out something for like a Game 7 of the World Series or something in case there is a Game 7, but even then, it's going to be a night game anyway, so you don't really need the day off. And then there's the trade deadline, which, you know, I just said I don't particularly care about, but that's that's kind of the only, like, notably busy day unless you want to talk about like the all-star game or something but that's i mean the baseball schedule stops anyway for for all-star games and all-star festivities so you don't necessarily need a national holiday for that but i don't know i mean personally when people get nostalgic about like playoff games happening during the day and you were just saying that you like baseball happening during the day but i hated that as a kid because I wanted to watch my team in the playoffs and my team was always in the playoffs and if there was a day game, I couldn't watch it and that was terrible. So I think when people talk about whether it's kid-friendly to have games start at 8 o'clock or whatever and it's bedtime, I think that's true, but it's also true that it's not that kid-friendly to have day games either, at least during weekdays, because you can't see it. <laughs> so I didn't like that either. They should play the playoffs in, in the summer. Yeah, sure. That'd be fine. <laughs> and then it'd be very kid-friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This is a tough one. <laughs> the other thing, too, is that a day off is only a day off for people in certain jobs. A, a day yeah. off, if you give a day off to the... If you declare something a holiday and you work in retail, now you're you're certainly working. Like, those are the days that retail yes. employees have to work because True. everybody goes out and does their 
their movie watching and their their shopping at Banana Republic. Yeah. So anyway, I'd I'd like to say that there would be a lot of days that should be national holidays, but the baseball season doesn't really work like that. It's not really structured around big days. There are only a few in any given year. I mean, the thing about baseball is that it's on every day and there's always baseball to watch and that's the most comforting and wonderful thing about it. But you don't really have to, there's no particular day that you would set aside, I don't think. I'm having a hard time coming up with one. So if this announcer is saying that the first day of the NCAA regionals should be a national holiday, that's that probably is in your top 30. That's probably in your like top 10 because... Uh, most people don't care that much about college baseball, but it is a day when there's a lot of baseball action. I would say that this, uh, presumably this uh, person who's asking this question has a, a job that is uh, salaried and not wage work, not not uh, hourly. And in that case, he could take this as a as a vacation on his own. And I would enjoy it much more if I were the only person who had the day off. <laughs> like there's something special about it being your day off in the middle of a week where everybody else is stuck at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should do that. <laughs> All right. Question from Haim. So this question is inspired by a rumor of a clause that is in Marcelo Zuna's contract. Apparently he has a clause in his contract that mandates him to only hit cleanup. Now I will just interject Do you believe here. that? <laughs> I will I will interject to say that I don't believe that. Yeah. Okay. He has only hit cleanup this year. And actually, last year, I think he hit cleanup in all but three of his starts, like 144 times he hit cleanup. So, like, the Cardinals hit him cleanup basically every day, but I can't imagine that, uh, you know, he's on a one-year ARB deal. I can't imagine that a team would consent to that. Unless, I don't like, think, yeah, I don't I mean, think he, a team would consent <laughs> to that for for anybody ever. No, I don't no. think, I don't even know if you could do that. But no. the the... There is like a pretty bright line between kind of like telling your manager what he has to do with you. Yes. Like you right. can ask for money and you can ask for sweets um, <laughs> and you can ask for plane, plane travel for your family. Yeah. But I don't think that there's a, any sort of consensus that you can ask your team to guarantee the manager has no uh, authority in how he uses you. No. Right. Uh, I, I, mean... I don't think culturally that that's there. Even if they are already hitting and clean up every day, which they are, they just they wouldn't want to set that precedent and they wouldn't want to be bound by it because what happens if he's not good? Then you're stuck with it. So, But that emailer was very confident. I, well, I guess there's a rumor out there. I have no idea whether there's any reporting that is the basis of this. I doubt it. But the question is, essentially, what if that were real? Haim says, this got me thinking, how much value would it knock off, say, Max Scherzer, if he demanded to hit cleanup? So I guess you could talk about it with a pitcher who, of course, is only hitting, you know, when he pitches or maybe some other guy who's in there for defense or something, but he's starting every day and he's not much of a hitter and he wants to hit cleanup every day. So so if, if uh, Max Scherzer, best pitcher in baseball, says I hit cleanup on the days that I start, so 32 times a year or whatever it is. You have, uh, you know, the worst hitter in baseball, one of the, the worst or would be the worst regular hitter in baseball hitting in a prime spot of your order. You, you can make it clean up. You can make it two or three, whatever you think the most important lineup spot is. If you had to do this, if you're if you were a manager and you were forced to abide by this, would it still make sense, do you think, to bat your best hitters for second and third? Or <laughs> would it make sense to bat them like six, seven, eight, nine? Yeah. And cost yourself extra plate appearances with your best hitters 
but right. but also um, maintain the clustering effect of offense? Yes, that's a good question because usually you want your good hitters at the top of the lineup, the good on-base guys, because A, you want good hitters getting the most plate appearances possible, but also you want them on base and setting the table for the guys who are going to drive them in. In this case, you're setting the table for Max Scherzer, who's just going to end every rally immediately. So yeah, I would guess in this case that you'd probably want the clustering effect, right? Instead of, even if it means fewer plate appearances for your good hitters. I think you'd probably want your good hitters in a row to drive each other in. Would you use, would you, uh, since Max Scherzer is playing hardball and doing, I mean, like at, at this point, bridges are being burned if he's demanding that he back <laughs> clean up for some reason. Uh, so would you then take it a step further and say, all right, that's fine. You'll back clean up. But we're now going to use you as a three inning pitcher for, you know, on a three three or four day rotation and then pinch Mm. hit for you the second time that you come up or would you even (laughs) use an opener and bring Uh him in to the second inning where he's now batting cleanup but it's the de facto ninth when he enters the game i think you'd do that right I think you would, but I guess the scenario depends on him not considering that possibility. <laughs> so he's he's mandated how you have to use him as a hitter, but he hasn't told you how you have to use him as a pitcher. I don't know. I think, yes, if you could do that, I think you'd do that. But let's say the, the spirit of the question is that you're stuck with him hitting cleanup and, and you have to keep using him the way that you have to use him. So he's, he's Max Scherzer, except he hits fourth instead of eighth or ninth or whatever. I mean, that's, it's a significant cost. Like we kind of, we don't make that much of lineup orders because most of the analyses show that it just doesn't matter that much. Like, because mostly with lineups, you're not talking about lineups where Max Scherzer is hitting fourth, you know, you're, you're talking about lineups where the pitcher is ninth. And maybe the, the big problem is that like the guy who should be hitting second is actually hitting fourth or hitting fifth or something. And over the course of a, a season, that just doesn't add up to that much. So if you're talking about the difference between an optimal lineup and a slightly suboptimal lineup, I think most of the numbers I see suggest that's, you know, two, three runs a season or, or something on that order. It's a, a fraction of a win, which doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's, you know, an unforced error to have a lineup that is not the best lineup it could be because you get to just choose the order. And so that's why people get frustrated when when it's wrong or perceived to be wrong. But this is not the difference between optimal and slightly worse. This is the difference between optimal and actually having your worst hitter in an important spot. So it's not nothing. All right. So I put this all into a lineup calculator and it wouldn't hurt much. As you said, it wouldn't hurt much, but it would really not hurt that much if you had (laughs) Max Scherzer or let's say a pitcher who had a 140 on base and a 200 slugging percentage uh, in a normal-ish lineup, they would score, well, the the normal-ish lineup that I put out there would score 4.35 runs a game. If you move everybody down one, but then put Scherzer fourth, uh, they would score 4.284. And so over the course of a whole game, which he won't even play the whole game, he's only going to bat twice. And so probably you could roughly have this as it is, uh, it would be about uh, 0.066 runs per game or one run every 16 games, basically. 
16 full games. If you have that, then one run every 32 games, which basically means that it's one run since he's only going to start 32 games. Right. It's basically one run. And so Max okay. Scherzer allows, what, 50 runs a year or so? Uh, now he would just make that the equivalent of uh, 51 or 61 or whatever, add one to his normal runs allowed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're talking about a tenth of a war. <laughs> not okay. a big difference. Yeah, that's not much at all. So, yeah, if that's accurate, I mean, if this were 162 games a year that you were doing this, then it'd be a little worse. It'd be half a win, let's say, if you're uh, holding all these other assumptions the same, and that would be worth considering. But since it's only 32 games a year or whatever, <laughs> you're not even going to really think about that one run. I mean, the big cost probably comes in the clubhouse discord there because you have your ace and, and the leader of your team or one of the leaders of your team is insisting on actively hurting the team for selfish reasons. So that might cause some strife, but in terms of actual results, yeah, but I mean, at least in theory, not that significant. Huh. Why would he want to do this? <laughs> I don't I don't know. He really likes hitting, wants to hit more often, and uh, he just wants to be the RBI guy on top of everything else. Max Scherzer does like hitting, right? Isn't he one of the guys yeah. who, when the, the DH debate comes up, he's mm-hmm. he's anti-DH because he likes hitting? So, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. He, he really likes hitting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Stat blast? Uh, yeah. All right. Max Scherzer, uh, 188, 219, 212 in his career. Uh-huh. He had 12 RBIs one year. Okay. That's, I don't know. Seems <laughs> like a that. lot. Yeah. Joey Votto has 11 RBIs this year. All right. Stat blast. So I've been tra- uh, tracking something of sort of a thing that I look up every couple days, which is that Michael Brantley, who is 32 years old, is currently 16th in the in the majors in war, in baseball references war among hitters. 32 years old, 16th. And he is the only player in the top 20 who's over 30. Everybody else's age starts with a two. Yeah. In fact, uh, Tommy Pham is 25th. And if he drops out, then it would be only one 30-year-old in the top 25. But we're going to focus on the top 20 because it seems to me that the top 20 is a, a pretty good shorthand for like the the superstars the best those are your superstars the 10 best players in each league um, those are the guys that you know every fan will come to know and that you'll market them and they're going to be on the cover of the team calendar next year and you get a bobblehead and everything and uh, 19 of those 20 players right now are under 30 not even 30 or under but under 30 and so this seemed really odd to me and I have been tracking it and I wondered, well, how odd is it? And so I built a spreadsheet of the top 20 players in war every year since integration in 1947 and uh, looked to see how 
out of the ordinary this is. And so the answer is that it's very out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first year, if it holds, this would be the first year ever that there was only one. And so if Brantley falls out and it drops to zero, it would really be the first year that there's nobody. But even at one, it is a first time ever sort of a thing. Uh, the only two years have there been as few as two. One was 1975 when the old representatives on the list were Joe Morgan at 31 and Davy Lopes at 30. So they were both pretty young for over 30. So that was a pretty interesting year. And the young stars of that day were Mike Schmidt and Fred Lynn and Bobby Gritch and Johnny Bench and Dave Parker and George Brett and Dwight Evans uh, and Steve Garvey. So that was a pretty fun, you could see, like that was a bunch of young stars there, mm -hmm. somewhat like this year. The other year that this happened was 1982. Well, this didn't happen, but that there were two over 30 years uh, was, was 1982. Doug DeCensis, Doug DeCensis, never learned how to pronounce, <laughs> covered the angels, never learned how to pronounce his name. Doug DeCensis? Doug DeCensis. <laughs> <laughs> Doug DeCensis. <laughs> Doug DeCensis. Yeah. And uh, Mike Schmidt, who shows up again now as an old guy. And that was... I just looked at his baseball reference page, and it's none of the, none of the versions he said. Doug DeCensis. Doug DeCensis. Doug DeCensis. Evidently. No S at the end. No, it's silent. Doug DeCensis. Yeah, that's what it says. All right. I can say that. Okay. All right. And so then you had young Cal Ripken... Young Wade Boggs, uh, you had uh, uh, youngish Robin Yount, and what year am I in? I think I might, yeah, youngish Robin Yount, uh, youngish Andre Dawson. Anyway, so there were two that year, but so that's interesting. Something's happening here, obviously. We've talked about how there are young, more young players, young players are better than ever. Uh, and so on. But this is another way of looking at it because it's not just the league wide. It's not the bulk of like 200 young players who are collectively better than young players have collectively been before. But this is actually the stars as well are young. So then I looked at the average age of the top 20. And this is the youngest average age of the top 20 uh, in any year at 26.5 years. 1975, aforementioned, was 26.6. That was the closest year. And um, usually, though, it's about what you expect. It's kind of mid-27s. Uh, and in 1947, the average was 30. And in 1952, the average was 30. So if you look at the youngest years on this list, 2019 is the youngest. 2017 was the fourth youngest. Uh, 2018 was the seventh youngest, and um, 2015 was the sixth youngest. So this is confirming a multi-year trend that we're all kind of aware of, but puts in a different perspective. But this brings up the question that I've been thinking about with uh, the, the reason that I keep looking at this is because um, when we talk about how young players are better than they've ever been, we're, the thing about any of these things is that you're not actually seeing any of these cohorts in a in a vacuum isolated you're comparing them to the other cohorts it's all ratios right and so young players are better today than they've ever been relative to old players and old players are somewhat worse today than they've mostly ever been relative to young players but does that mean that the young players are getting better uh, usually we assume that that we do when we talk about this conversation we're usually looking for reasons why young players are better why they're coming up more advanced why they're more athletic more precocious stronger more developed have better approaches at the plate better trained i guess and so i keep wondering though if 
this if if we are all if there's also reason to think that old players are worse if they're disadvantaged in this modern style of play not just relative to young players but if they're actually disadvantaged if the old players are collectively worse and so that's kind of why I'm focusing on this this Michael Brantley fact because if there are no old players no older players who are able to break through and be really good then I don't know I don't know what that means but it sort of maybe suggests that there's there's two fo- forces at work here, one that's making young players better and one that's potentially making old players worse. So I don't know if you have an, an, any thoughts on this, any hypotheses, uh, but the styles of play, the style of play that is that we see right now is more velocity. So maybe you mm-hmm. would think that if you're, as you get older, uh, bat speed would be one of the things that that would differentiate you um, from your younger self, and you might be especially prone to higher velocity. I think the fact that the strike zone has moved up and that the average pitch has moved up, that you're seeing higher pitches uh, in addition to higher velocity, but actually higher pitches, seems like that could be something that older players might find more disadvantageous than they did when they were younger. Mm -hmm. The reliance on data on new sources of data new preparation i guess techniques Mm -hmm. uh, might disadvantage older players who could be either more set in their ways or just simply like less native to this technology than younger players who were raised with uh, a lot more of this stuff as being commonplace for them Mm -hmm. Um, so that seems like maybe something the one contradiction to this is that you might think that with strikeouts higher league wide that your ability to uh, that the share of your value that would come from defense would be smaller because there's just fewer balls put in play and more of the balls that right. are put in play are home runs. And so if we know that the aging curve for defense is particularly steep and unforgiving um and so it, we're looking at war that includes defense and if your defense is not as much of a liability in this era as it was in previous eras, then that might help the older players war, but that's seemingly less stealing too, less trying to take the extra base, less less being on base in the first place. Yeah. That's a really good point. And so, uh, so that seems like it would help the older players wars, but maybe there's other forces. Do you think of anything else where the, that might explain why older players, even, even, even not in comparison to younger players, but just on their own skill levels would be, worse in this era than they were five five years ago no those are the best ideas i have and joshian has put forth that theory about velocity and it's just hard to catch up to pitches and rob arthur and i wrote about that a few years ago for 538 and we at the time couldn't confirm or couldn't find evidence that that was the case that older players were suffering from velocity more or you know we we couldn't forget exactly how we looked at it but maybe it's worth revisiting because that seems like it intuitively should be true but that that's kind of the best on the face of it theory i have i don't know otherwise i mean you'd think that older players even if they're not you know taking pds which maybe they were a couple decades ago there are ways that you could keep them in shape, maybe older and conditioning. Of course, younger players are doing that too, but maybe it would be more helpful to older players, helping them stay on the field and stay closer to their optimal performance. So that'd be something that would benefit older players, you'd think. So I don't know. Nothing else comes to mind. 
Is it, this seems like a stretch, but do you think there's any case that the game is more tiring because it's long, because games are slower that you spend more time on the field hmm. and probably see more pitches and that simply from a fatigue perspective, I mean, it, it wouldn't be probably something that you would notice exactly that it would be so obvious that you would notice it. But if you're playing say 2% more baseball now than to get through a season than you did 10 years ago. Uh, that that two percent would be a very slow slow a slow drain but a drain that would have more impact on older players than on younger players could be although i guess there's also more time between pitches so there's more recovery time in games but also more cumulative wear and tear so i I don't know how that would the time between pitches though if, if for half of the game you're standing up during that time yeah I think Rob also has written for 538 about how older players take longer between pitches, which I don't know if that's because they need the recovery time or because there's more going on in their heads. They're they're thinking through the strategy more. I, I don't know, but that would suggest that older players like longer breaks between pitches or benefit from it or think that they do. So I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. Um, still thinking about it. Okay, I have one last one here. This is from Henry. He says, Something I've consistently noticed since the introduction of the mound visit limit is radio and TV broadcasters paying lots of attention to how many mound visits each team has remaining. My unverifiable belief is that this barely ever matters. Six mound visits is a lot. But that never seems to stop broadcasters from telling me exactly how many visits a team has remaining. Lord knows broadcasters need to fill dead air however they can, but this is always very silly to me. Is this the most inconsequential thing that listeners or viewers are always made aware of? Most other stats that are discussed or displayed on the scoreboard are either important or interesting or descriptively powerful. Even the number of challenges remaining, which broadcasters also love discussing and which I also find laughable, at least plausibly could impact a game in dramatic fashion. Can any other stat challenge mound visits remaining when it comes to the ratio of time spent talking about it to relevance? And... I'll just mention here because uh, I asked MLB about this when I was writing about rules changes this spring because uh, the mound visits are going to be reduced to five or already are reduced to five. I forget. Yeah, they are, right? So only 33 times last season did a team use all six of its mound visits. So that's like in only 5% of games does even one team use all of its allotted mound visits. And of course, they may cut back on mound visits that they otherwise would have made because they know about the limits, but very rarely does it come into play where you actually run out or, or would be in violation of this limit. So I agree that it is mostly inconsequential, and yet you do hear about it fairly regularly. I don't, to be honest, I don't notice hearing it that much. I'm surprised that that you and the emailer have both noticed this so often. But uh, when I... It's on some scoreboards too. Yeah, it is on scoreboards. I feel like um, if you're telling me that they've used two mound visits because it's important that I am doing the accounting, then yes, I agree. It's almost, I'm not keeping track of it. I don't care to keep track of it. Tell me when they run out. Uh, When Mm -hmm. they run out, then I'm interested. But... I, th- I feel like when I hear it, it's usually in the context of like, uh, like just noting that this thing that is, is restricted is there is a limit on it that a team has used a couple of them. And it tells you something about just the way the game is going, the way that the pitcher and the catcher are not working together. The yeah. fact that the pitcher is in enough trouble early that his team has felt the need to twice go out and address him. So it's significant just for pointing out, like in the same way that if you point out the pitcher's 
body language is different. Like that's part of your job as a color commentator to say like, you know, he just doesn't look like he's in a good rhythm right now, or he and the catcher are shaking each other off a lot. Uh, or, uh, you know, the, the base runner is, um, having a hard time getting a read on his pickoff move, all those sorts of things where it describes the color of the game, uh, in a way. Uh, it's not a super significant thing, and certainly if they use their fourth one to like talk to their lefty reliever about you know who's gonna field a, you know a sacrifice bunt and whether the third baseman's gonna stay at the bag or, or 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 not like that sort of thing it doesn't really matter like the the scarcity of the mound visits is not significant to me. Uh, yeah. But I I do kind of feel like I'm a, I'm always a little surprised I, when a, so if a pitcher is. Uh, struggling in the first inning, I do kind of pay attention to like, oh, how long until they visit? And I wouldn't have thought that in the past because mm-hmm. you just you go out and visit all the time. But I do sort of think, oh, well, he's the first three guys are on. Now do they do a visit? So so that seems to have some value. Yeah. Okay. All right. You've made a case for the mound visit. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you do hear about that you don't need to hear about? Nothing has come to mind yeah. yet. No. You know what I would, here's something that I feel like the, uh, this is a totally different answer to a different question, but what I would like to see done, what I would like to see added is as soon as a pitcher gets up and starts throwing in the bullpen, I would like that information to be on the screen and I would like a clock to be on the pitcher who's warming up, how long he's been warming up. And I would like it to be common knowledge, how long it takes a typical pitcher to warm up. Hmm. I want to know when he's ready. I want to have a good sense of like, because I feel like you oftentimes you don't know whether the pitcher's been up for 10 seconds or for three minutes. And when he, you know, how, A, how long has he been warming up? Is he ready? But B, I don't know how long it takes to get ready for the most part. And so I would like it to be common knowledge. And I would like to have that information during a broadcast. I'd also like to know about relievers who get uh, dry humped, as they call it, you know, relievers Uh who warm up and don't come in, which is something that teams track, but it's something that broadcasts could easily track because they usually show the guy on the screen or they tell you when someone is warming and they could keep track of times that someone warmed but did not enter the game. So that'd be an interesting stat too if you could tell me that so-and-so has warmed up this many times and has only entered up this many times or, you know, this guy's leading the team in times warming up without coming into the game or something. I mean, that might have analytical value, but it might also have descriptive value in just telling you like, you know, what this guy's season has looked like and his manager trusts him enough to get him up all the time, but hasn't brought him in all of those times. So that's a stat that is not mentioned that I wish were mentioned. But other than that, I mean, there are a lot of useless stats that are cited on broadcasts, but there's not like one category that stands out unless you want to talk about like batter versus pitcher, you know, if it's very small sample, I think you hear that less than you used to. And even then I don't mind it so much. I'm, yeah. It's, I'm not against it. It's all about it. like, are you telling me that it's meaningful or are you yeah. just telling me that that's what happens? Because I'm, I'm fine with knowing the history just as long as you're not suggesting that a three for five tells me something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All right. I think that's it. Uh, let's see. We, we had a couple of people write in response to our strategy from last week that we mentioned the strategy that we have advocated or suggested that a team might want to start pulling its pitchers in the middle of plate appearances to take batters by surprise. No one has adopted that strategy in the big leagues yet. It's been a whole week, huh. although some people have tweeted us about college teams who are doing it. 
But uh, we had someone mention Kieran wrote in to point out something that we hadn't mentioned, which I think was a good point. He said, I think the fact that relievers are frequently subbed out for relatively better relievers could potentially help them in a game theory kind of way. If you have a worse reliever on the mound and the team has a mid-count pitching change policy, the batter might press to make something happen before the degree of difficulty increases. So if Justin Wilson is on the mound and Batensis is ready in the pen and you know that they're going to bring him in at some point, you might try to press, expand the zone, etc. The asymmetry may end up helping the first reliever. Just another way it could make batters generally uncomfortable. So we hadn't thought of that, but yes, the strategy, even more viable now. Yeah. Okay. And uh, a couple people asked us how it would fit in. Justin and Nathan asked how this would work with the new batter's faced rule that goes into effect next year. Have you thought about this at all? Like uh, Justin said, how would the strategy of pulling pitchers mid at bat interact with the batter's face rule that goes into effect next year? If throwing one pitch counts as a batter, you could have a situation wherein your loogie gets in trouble and allows the two guys on who he was meant to get, then is forced to face the next guy. He could throw one pitch, then get pulled mid-plate appearance, which could get you around the rule, which I think is also the, the point that Nathan made. So is this like a life hack for the the batter's face rule too, or is this a problem for oh, the well, I just I don't know what the rule is. I yeah, they haven't they haven't explained that exactly yeah. what counts as a batter's face. I, but if that's true, then that's another point well, in I, favor. Right? I don't I, as it is. I I don't know the rule now, but I assume at least that if you are brought into a game as a lefty to face the lefty, and they pinch hit the righty, and you have to face one batter before you're allowed to leave, that one batter means one batter and not one pitch. Yeah, you're. I've right. never seen anybody take advantage of that loophole. True. Yeah. Okay. I think you're probably right about that. So, right. So then. If that stays consistent, then you would expect that one pitch would not count as a batter's face, and it would not be a way of getting around that restriction. But it could count as a batter face the other way. If you throw the last pitch of an at-bat, mm. that might count for one of your batters. Right. Yes. Okay. Huh. All right. A lot to consider here. Well, we just have to know the rule. It, it's <laughs> yeah. pointless to, to think about it without the rule being yeah. known, but it's, it is a, it is definitely something that will factor into that. Yes, equation. it's brilliant either way. I it think. is. Yeah, okay. All right, so that will do it. I will talk to you next week. Okay, dope. All right, that will do it for today. As mentioned, my book, The MVP Machine, is out now. You can order it. In theory, you can stroll right into a bookstore and buy it. We hope that you will. These week one sales mean a lot to us for getting on bestseller lists, which would be great both for our egos and for raising awareness of the book. It's also like, you know, when a team will print out a column from someone who said that they weren't contenders or the preseason pakotas that said they weren't good, and they'll use that as motivation. If we make some bestseller lists, I'll go back and look at the publishers who turned us down, revel in the book succeeding despite them. Does that reflect well on my personality? No, probably not. But we're really gratified by the response. Thank you for everyone who has gotten the book already and has tweeted at us or left a comment in the Facebook group, sent us a picture of your book. I personally never tire of receiving those, and I'm glad that a lot of you who started the book already are really enjoying it, it seems like. So again, please go get it. If you think you're going to buy it at some point, don't wait. It'll help us a lot if you pick it up now. Leave a positive rating on Amazon and Goodreads. And thanks to all of you for your feedback. We are really enjoying it 
can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already done so. Brandon Hayes, Mark Rohan, Steve May, Sean Dundar, and Evan Rafino. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. I guess iTunes is about to go away, but hopefully those reviews and ratings will live on. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrafts.com and via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and Meg and I will be back to talk to you very soon. 